Thank you. Thank you, guys. So Jesus and I are actually still kind of chatting about this whole Easter thing, sharing it with my birthday. I was like, <laughs> the resurrection, my birthday. Yeah, come on. I know, right? But I, I'm like, yeah, maybe something. Pray for me. Pray for me. I need to work this out. Today is going to be amazing. Um, I leaned over and told David, I was like, it's, probably, it's only downhill from here because I'm already crying my eyes out during worship. <laughs> it's going to be one of these days, guys. I can tell. Um, you know what, though? Regardless of where you're at today, I don't know exactly where everyone's at. Um, maybe everything's going great. Maybe this week was amazing. Maybe it was challenging. Maybe you've been going through it. Maybe you've been going through it for a long time. Maybe it's just something in particular that you're really struggling with or something that's coming up that you're looking towards and you're like, you're not really, really looking forward to going through this. But I believe that this message is going to speak directly into that today, that God has something to say about all of that, regardless of where you're at. Even if things are fine, like the, the reality is, right, when we walk with Jesus and we're on a journey with Jesus for quite some time, we start to see that just because we're in a journey with God doesn't keep us from circumstance and, and, and issues. It almost seems like we have a greater magnet on us when we're walking with Jesus that problems kind of find us yeah. and we have to walk through more of them. But the great news that I have for us is that there is no circumstance, there's no challenge on earth that is too great for our God. None of it. None of it is too great and you are not alone. Regardless of how you may feel, regardless of how your prayer life might even feel right now, you are not alone. The God that created the heavens and the earth is with you. I believe that today you're going to be encouraged because it's God's word. It's not just that I'm, I came up with something. We're going to be talking directly out of God's word today. But... <coughs> Looking at this week, this was a big week, actually, um, for a lot of people. We saw that there's a memorial service this week. I don't know if a lot of you have been keeping up with the news or the news of Billy Graham. Um, for those of you that don't know who he is, he's quite possibly one of the greatest evangelists that we've seen, at least in America, for the past hundred years or so. Um, you know, a great church leader, looked up to by so many people. Um, you know, it was his memorial service this week. He lived to 99 years old. And like to affectionately look at it as like, you know, not that he just died, but he was promoted. His ministry is crazy. The numbers are, numbers are staggering. He spoke to and preached to over 215 million people. Over 37 states, over 47 countries. This man ministered to all of these people. What does that translate into? That translates into countless people that have been welcomed into the family of God as a result. Yeah. Countless people that are possibly even right now as we speak with Jesus because they heard this message of hope through this man. What's really cool is he was kind of, he's like kind of been the pastor to the presidents in America. He's like a spiritual advisor in a lot of ways from Harry Truman all the way to Barack Obama. Wow. 
He took time to meet with all of them, and they always sought him out and welcomed him with open arms, which is so cool to see, you know, a leader in the faith that was embracing people in politics and understanding that they needed encouragement as well and that they needed someone stable to be in their world as well. So it's pretty wild to see that that, you know, from every single president all the way through all of them. Also Queen Elizabeth even had a relationship with. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but for probably over 20 years now, he battled with his health. I don't know if a lot of you are familiar with him. I, I always was, but I didn't keep too close to tabs on him. But for over 20 years, he battled with his health. Um, 1995, for instance, he was in Toronto. And he actually was preaching. He actually collapsed while he was preaching in front of this crowd. Was bedridden for a few days, but a few days later, he actually crawled out of bed to preach to a record setting 73,500 people in the Sky Dome in Toronto. 2005 was his last crusade, and in this last crusade, it saw over 230,000 people attend it. It's hectic. They would just go and get circus tents and put them up in parking lots, and people would come like, and just flood in and flood in to hear this man speak. Something that I experienced, actually Jules and I both experienced recently, is in the North Bay fires. I didn't even know that this existed, but we pulled up to one of the churches, and there's this massive semi in the parking lot that said Billy Graham Ministries. And it was actually the Billy Graham response team in the, from the response center that he has. Part of the Billy Graham Ministries actually created this response team. And what they did is they go into areas that have experienced tragedy in some way, shape, or form. And they provide counseling. They provide prayer. They provide you know, any tangible needs that they can. And they actually bring these semis that have offices in them. And they bring them in parking lots and they're able to just meet with people and they bring staff on board as well to meet with people. So it's really cool to see how this man's ministry stretched out and he you know, met the needs of so many people just where they're at. Yeah. I was looking up some of the interviews that he did and like some of the talks that he had, especially with younger generations. I was really intrigued by that. One of the words of wisdom he gave to them, he said, I, actually, I urge each of you to invest your lives, not just to spend them. He said, we're all given seconds, we're all given minutes and hours, like each of us, and none different. Some we might have a little more than others, but we're all given them the same way. We're all given this time. The only difference, though, is how we choose to redeem those. He went on to say that you cannot count your days, but you can make your days count. Longevity. 99 years, and this man was in ministry for who knows, over 70 years, faithful. He had a legacy of consistency and faithfulness. So I thought it was so fitting, and unfortunately in the news of him passing, but knowing where he's at is great because he's in a better place. But it's no coincidence, I think, that we've been going through the book of Daniel as well these past couple weeks and talking about resolve. Because if anyone had resolved, this man must have. To be in ministry for that long, yeah, you see the highs of it, but imagine the lows. All of the people that walked away from him. All of the people that accused him for things. And he said a lot of stuff that later he had to come out and apologize for. So many things. 
Like he was so heavily involved in the civil rights movement and then even him and Martin Luther King got closer and closer and then they butt heads with certain things and he had to come back and he came out and he apologized and made amends. So like imagine the highs and lows, but there was a resolve in this man's heart of who God was and that people needed to hear this message. I think of the first week, two weeks ago when we first spoke of Daniel, we looked at Daniel chapter one, verse eight, remember where scripture says, and Daniel resolved, he purposed in his heart. We saw in that very moment that the decision that Daniel made impacted other decisions throughout his life. Last week, Joseph brought a message entitled, Faith Like a Fire. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepping out in faith, and not just their faith, but their faith that impacted so many people around them. That resolve. So this week's going to be no different. We're actually going to go a little further into the story, but one of the legendary stories of the Bible, Daniel and the lion's den. We're going to be in chapter 6 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you have your phones, go ahead and turn, get ready to turn and get ready in Daniel chapter 6. Now I know a couple of weeks I told you that Daniel is a book that has 12 chapters in it, and chronologically it's actually not in order. Again, the first six chapters are you know, historical kind of narrative. The last six, cha- six chapters are all prophetic kind of end times involving. But the thing is, chapter six, if you put it in chronological order, it would actually be about three quarters of the way through. So it would technically be like probably chapter nine or so, a little further down the road. We talk about the early king being King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Remember this great king that was so powerful. And then right after him, there was King Belshazzar, who ruled as well. And then they went from Belshazzar to King Darius the Mede, who is the, now the leader and the king over the Medo-Persia Empire, which is even greater than Babylon. It was even larger than that. But we're going to talk and get started with this guy right away. It's funny because I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, oh man, what are some of the things that pop up? You know, thinking about this story, I think about, um, you know, in Sunday school, did you guys ever see the, like, the felt boards? So Anyone have foot? Yes. Right? Daniel and the Lions. And that was like one of the most popular ones. I can't help but like constantly think about that when we talk about this story. So what I want to ask is I want to ask a little favor, like hearing this, knowing that we're going to go through the Lions Den today, we've probably have all heard the story Countless times. In fact, I could probably give you all the mic and you could get up here and tell us about it. But what I'm going to ask is that you listen with fresh ears, believing that God's going to show you something different. Because I actually kind of believe, not kind of, I'm pretty confident that God's going to reveal something new to you today in this passage. So where we begin in chapter 6, I'm going to kind of paraphrase this to get you up to speed. Chapter 6 begins with King Darius and King Darius is a great administrative ruler. He took what King Nebuchadnezzar did and he like made it even bigger. So the administrative portion for King Darius was very strong. He realized he couldn't rule the kingdom all on his own. He needed people. So what he did is he appointed 120 satraps, which is a word that we use all the time today, right? <laughs> so a satrap is a, is a governing official. He appointed 120 of these governing officials all over the Medo-Persia Empire. Now, and over these 120 satraps, he appointed three administrators 
who all worked under him, the king. So as a king, three administrators, and 120 satraps. Well, Daniel was one of these three satraps, one of these administrators. Now, Daniel did such a good job, and the king was so impressed with him, and he was so faithful, and he trusted him, that he wanted to actually, he was going to promote Daniel and put him over the entire kingdom. Imagine this. Imagine everyone that grew up in this culture, and they're like, who's this exile coming in, and he's going to be over us? The other two administrators, the Bible tells us, started to get jealous. And then they went to the 120 satraps, and they're like, look what's going on. The king's going to promote this guy. We need to do something, and we need to do something fast. We need to get him in trouble. So we need to find grounds that we can get this guy in trouble. I think in the original Hebrew, the word for this theme that we're talking about, it was referred to as haters. Some of you might know that. It's okay. Yeah. So, and they went, to, they went through things. They tried to find what they, could, what they could with Daniel, and they tried to trip him up, but they couldn't do anything. They couldn't find anything. It was literally to no avail could they find something that they could get him in trouble with. There's nothing, because he was trustworthy. He wasn't negligent. There's no sign of him being corrupt whatsoever, and they dug deep. The only thing that they knew they could get him with, they're like, if we're ever going to get him, it has to be something referring to or related to his God because he's pretty faithful with that God of his. So what do they do? Went as a group to the king. Not just two, they gathered the satraps as well. So imagine this whole crew coming up to the king. 120 odd people, well, 122 to be exact, right? And they walk up to the king. It's, it's almost like this picture of like a little kid that wants something from their parents and they're like, hi mom, hi dad, I love you. You look so pretty today. Can I have $5? <laughs> right? So what do they do? All these guys, King Darius, may King Darius live forever. If I was him, I'd be like, what do you want? Really? What is it? So they say, well, guess what? We all agreed. We came together and we agreed that um, you should make this decree. And what you should do is you should make this decree that any person that prays to any human or any God, aside from you, for 30 days, if they're caught praying for somebody else other than you, oh great king, we should put them in the lion's den. Wow. Modern day translation, if they're praying to anybody else except for to the king, they'll be put to death. This wasn't just put in the lion's den, this was, you're going to be put to death. You guys with me? Yeah. Okay. So they say, issue this decree and then put this decree in writing because according to this law of Medo-Persia, once things were in writing, even by the king, the king could not revoke it and could not cancel it out. This is a little different because King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, a couple kings previous to, you know, before him, if King Nebuchadnezzar said something, whatever he said went. He could revoke whatever, he could make whatever law, not anymore. If this was in writing, it is what it is. There's no going back to it. So they get to the king, you know, thinking, and he's like, you know what, this actually sounds kind of good because I'm the king and I kind of like me some me, you know? Pretty good. Pretty good ruler, right? So they could pray for me for 30 days. That works. I feel okay with it. So he does it. He makes this decree. This is where we're going to take off. Turn to verse 10. 
Verses 10 through 12. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree, and they said, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or any human being except to you, your majesty, of course, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So scripture is going to go on after this point, and it's gonna, it actually says that, so they gather everyone around, and they're like, but king... You just said, like, that stands, right? Well, Daniel, that exile that you brought in, that you're given all this responsibility to, king, he doesn't pay any attention to you. Oh, great king, oh, majesty. Or your decree. So he doesn't pay attention to you or your decree. He's still praying three times a day to his God. And he's not exactly hiding it. Scripture goes on to say that King Darius was actually distressed in this moment. And he was determined to save Daniel and to rescue him because he loved Daniel. Daniel was very faithful, served in the kingdom. So it actually says that until sundown, he like scurried around looking if if there's any way that he could maybe revoke this decree, change something around, maybe make an addendum so he didn't have to get Daniel in trouble anymore. But then of course the men went back to the king and, oh great king, remember, Your law, remember what you said, it cannot be changed. Let's go to verse 16. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Well, Daniel answers, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So right after this, I'm going to intentionally skip over this last portion because it's pretty graphic. But basically, all these people that conspired against him, the king grabbed them and, un- and their entire families and threw them into the lion's den. And the lions didn't keep their mouths closed th- this time. So you can imagine what happens. We're going to skip down to verse 26 and see what the result is of all of this. King Darius is saying that he said, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. Somebody like King Darius woke up all of a sudden, right? Come on. 
He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. You know, it's amazing because this story, like we said, it's such a legendary Bible story, but it really reiterates the theme that we've been talking about and even I brought up earlier today that There's no challenge, there's no circumstance, no lion's den, whatever your lion's den might look like, too great for God. Nothing too great for God. If we think of this story as a whole, I think a lot of times in Christianity, there's phrases kind of thrown around, or the Dane on the lion's den is used quite often. I don't know if any of you have ever heard someone say like, well, I just need faith like Daniel. I just need faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Or people, you know, encourage you, oh, you just got to pray that you have, you know, just have faith like Daniel did in the lion's den. Have that faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Just like the felt board, we got to see Daniel and all these lions, and he had faith, and so God shut the mouths of the lions, right? I don't know about you, but my picture of Daniel in my head for some reason was like this. Looked like Daniel just got off some pull-up bar at CrossFit, and he's like super ripped and... <laughs> You know, he's inside this lion's den, and the lions didn't want to mess with him, and he's just like this man of God, and they stayed on one side of the den, and he stayed on the other. But that's completely wrong. Daniel is actually like in his 80s or 90s. He was actually in the twilight years of his life. He was much older. Much older man in this lion's den. But what I want to do in our time that we have left today is I want to bring your attention and a lot to focus in that Daniel in the lion's den and his faith in the lion's den was actually no different than Daniel any other day of his life. It wasn't like in this single instance that he had a greater measure of faith. That God all of a sudden gave him this divine impartation of great faith that got him through this. I know a lot of us might think this. I thought this for so long. Well, it's this faith, this unshakable faith that he has, and like he had it in this very moment, but that moment was just so small, yet we choose to focus in on that story. And if I read this right, we just kind of went through chapter six, right? You all with me? We went through chapter six. There's not really any verses that talk about the lion's den. You can go back and look at it later. We didn't really skip any. Talks about him being lowered into the lion's den, him being raised out of the lion's den, but it doesn't talk about what went into it. Which, some ways for me personally, leads me to believe that maybe the lion's den isn't the point of this entire story. So what I want to bring our attention to is the aspects of this man, this great man that we might brush over as we're building up and trying to get to this lion's den story that's so familiar with us, because it is a triumphant story. But we're going to identify four habits that Daniel had that enabled him to be this man of faith, the same man of faith that in Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter that's known as like the Faith Hall of Fame, that gives Daniel a nod and a shout out, saying, you know, we don't even have to go into the prophets like Daniel and listing off all these people that shut the mouths of lions. So Daniel was acknowledged for having great faith, but maybe, just maybe, it was the habits that he had in place that enabled him to have this faith. Yeah. 
Back to the beginning of chapter six. We're about to take off. I'm warmed up now. Are you guys warmed up? <laughs> habit number one. Daniel had the habit of being faithful. You're like, okay. That's the thing. We equate faith with this great divine, mystical, like mystifying thing when it's actually faith is practical. Daniel had a habit of being faithful. What does faithful mean? It means steadfast in your allegiance to something. Firm in your observation of your duty. In Luke 16.10, I love how Jesus says in the New Living Translation, if you're faithful in little things, you will be faithful in larger things. Faithful. Being trustworthy. Being faithful with what you have. In chapter 6, verse 3, Scripture tells us, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel was faithful. He showed up to work. He did his job. Whether he agreed with it or not, he did his job. He so distinguished himself. In chapter 1, we saw that he went on this diet. He just wanted vegetables and water, right? He was faithful in that. He was faithful in studying, and look at what happened. The king found him and his friends ten times smarter and ten times ahead of any other magician, enchanter in the kingdom. Chapter 2. Scripture tells us the king placed Daniel in a high position, ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and also its wise men. Daniel was faithful, so faithful that people in his world who even didn't even know his God recognized that this man was faithful and trustworthy. So this man was faithful. It's almost as if Daniel mastered the art of getting out of the way. Hear me out. It's almost as if he mastered the art of allowing God to be God. He kept showing up, he did his job, even when it wasn't easy. He allowed God to take care of the rest. He had a habit of being faithful. And we're warming up, and that's our first habit, is a habit of being faithful, very practical, but very much all throughout this story of this man, Daniel. He was faithful. Let's go on to the second one. Habit number two. Daniel had the habit of being a person of integrity. What's integrity? Integrity is moral uprightness. It's being honest and having strong moral principles. I love how C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, integrity is doing the right thing when no one is watching. Chapter 6, verse 4, we see at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct against, or of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He performed his duties with integrity. He performed his duties with integrity. They couldn't find anything against him. Not only was he faithful, but he was integrous, so much so that we see in chapter 2, 
and for the kings entrusted him to interpret dreams. When no one else could interpret dreams, the kings entrusted him because he was integrous. Whatever the job was, he showed integrity. He displayed it. Even if the dream was something bad that the king really wanted people to be honest, and most of the magicians and the enchanters would tell him what he want to hear. Oh, king, just don't worry about it. You're amazing. You're going to live forever. You're going to rule forever when Daniel had to say those hard things to the king. But he was integrous. It was the behind the scenes that allowed him to be the man that he was and to be promoted like he was. In chapter 5, on the, with the writing on the wall, it, if you've never read this story, it's crazy. King Belshazzar like, takes all of the stuff from the temple in Jerusalem, like all the, the cups and all this stuff, all the, the decorations and everything, brings it all in. He's like, let's have a party and let's use this stuff. We're going to mock them and their God. We're going to fill it all with alcohol. Let's drink. We could dance on the tables, whatever, and use all the stuff that was in the temple of the God that they worshipped. Then this hand appears on the wall and starts writing. It's just a hand by itself. You guys, this is in the Bible. You got to read it sometime. It's actually pretty good. And so like this, this hand is like writing something. And so Belshazzar brings Daniel in to interpret this. Daniel does. He's a man of integrity, so he trusts him. So Belshazzar's like, look at all this stuff. I'm going to give you everything, da, da, da. And Daniel's like, no, you can keep your gifts. He said, your rewards... You could actually give it to someone else. It's okay. I don't want it. He was a man of integrity. He had a habit to be a person of integrity. Are you with me? Good. We're halfway through there. This is going to get even better. We're ramping up. Habit number three. Ooh, we're going to go deep, y'all, right? He had an ha- a habit of prayer. Hmm. Daniel had a habit of prayer. Chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upper room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem three times a day. He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. That's key. In chapter 2, before King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, we see Daniel crying out to God. And even more so, he gets his three buddies, and he's like, we need to pray. He's putting everyone to death, like all the wise men to death. We need to pray that God gives us this interpretation. God does. In chapter 9, Daniel's pleading with God in prayer and petition. Scripture actually says that, that Daniel was pleading with God in prayer and petition. It actually shows his prayer. Later in chapter 9, the angel Gabriel shows up on the scene. And he tells Daniel, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out. That's why I'm here. Daniel was a man of prayer. Chapter 10, there's another messenger from heaven that came up. And he tells Daniel, your words were heard, and I came actually in response to your words. Prayer consistently through this entire book. Church, I wonder if our prayer life, what does it look like when situations arise? Better yet, what does it look like in the mundane day-to-day when things are just kind of even keel? What does it look like then? 
And then what does it look like when you're on the top of the mountain and God is good because you got the promotion or you got something else or like God provided and he came through. What does it look like then? As opposed to when you feel like you're all by yourself and you've been waiting for that answer that you don't see is even going to happen. Or you're in it and you can't even see past any of this and you can't even see like a sense of hope in what you're going through. What does it look like then? Why is it that we only tend to look for God in circumstance? But Daniel did the exact opposite. Daniel looked for God in everything, in every moment. In trials and in hardship, he responded no differently than he did when his day was normal. Three times a day. Three times a day, and it's easy to read that and be like, yeah, it's biblical times. It's Daniel, right? He was one of three administrators on the largest, in the largest kingdom on earth at the time. He made time. We live full lives. I get it. God, I might be able to shoot a prayer when I'm running around somewhere or whatever. This man lived a full life. And three times a day, he made it a point to not just pray, but to get on his knees and pray. What's our excuse? What's my excuse? I love this next portion. Scripture tells us that he, uh, he prayed facing Jerusalem. They found Daniel praying and asking God for help, but it says the verse before that, I love it. Three times a day he got down on his knees, he prayed, giving thanks to God. Facing Jerusalem. This is what blew my mind the other week. I've always pushed through this and just thought, maybe there's something symbolic. Let me create a little context for you and how I'm now seeing this picture. Windows open, he's looking out there, on his knees, praying towards it. Jerusalem is actually in shambles. It's a remnant of what once was a great city, what once was the city of God, of Yahweh. Not anymore. It was rubble. He was looking out to what was quite possibly his greatest pain and deepest sorrow because he was plucked from that land and brought in to Babylon, taken away from his family, taken away from all things that he knew, all things that were familiar, and yet he made it a point to get on his knees and pray, looking towards that, but not just looking towards his greatest heartache, giving thanks. It's as, almost as if he knew who God was and he knew that something could change. So he looked towards that heartache, but he gave thanks regardless. I wonder if we could do that, church. If we could stare down our need and look at our need and our lack and our trouble and our hurt and our heartache, if we could look at that 
and say, but I choose to thank you still. I get on my knees in reverence because you are God, you are above all things, and I choose to thank you in the face of opposition. Bring in another element. He just heard about this decree that anyone could be killed if they're praying to their God. And what does he do? He gives thanks. Who is this guy? Maybe, maybe we've gotten the, the recipe a little twisted. Maybe we need to start giving thanks more. Maybe we need to start praising more. Maybe that'll change things. Kneeled. I think about him kneeling in that posture. What that posture tells me is that it's a posture of submission and of reverence, of saying, like, God, you are above all things, and I commit myself to you. Because let me tell you, church, I think this is something that we could all find, but it was in those very moments on his knees is where Daniel found the strength to stand. What does our prayer life look like? Does it look like us aligning our hearts with God's or does it look like us simply asking for things? I heard this the other week. Actually, we're at the conference and we heard this, one of the guys mentioned this. He said, are we seeking the hands of God, like for God to do something, or are we seeking his face? Daniel had a habit of prayer. But the habit of prayer was a habit of seeking the face of God. Maybe that's something that we could equip ourselves with. The final habit that we're going to find from this man in chapter 6 of his story, he, has, he had a habit to resolve. He actually built a lifetime of resolve. In chapter 1, verse 8, remember again, we see in that scripture that Daniel resolved Daniel purposed in his heart. He drew the line there and he said, no, no, no. This is who God is. This is who I am. I am who you say I am. This is who I am. And I choose to obey you. I choose to live a life for you. This is who you are, God, regardless of what I see. This is who I am, God, regardless of what I'm experiencing, regardless of what I'm going through in this very moment. This is who I am. Sometimes I need to continuously, just continuously reiterate that this is actually who I am. Although I don't feel like it, this is who I am because this is who God is. And sometimes it's going to take us to continuously say this and say this and say this and allow our mind to catch up with our heart. It's going to take a moment and we got to continuously like even preach that to ourselves. Resolve. In chapter 2, scripture says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he asked about. And Daniel's saying this. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel resolved who God was. He, went, he had the boldness to go in front of this king and said, no one else could tell you this. I can't even tell you this, but I know who God is. I know who God is, and I know what he's capable of. In chapter 4, he had to tell the hard truth to King Nebuchadnezzar about his dream. But he resolved to put God first. That's why he didn't lie. He was honest about that dream. 
So your resolve today influences your tomorrow. Your resolve today, that choice, that decision you make today, that step you make today influences your tomorrow. It steers the ship of your future. It's not a one-off, like Morgan said earlier, it's a, you know, it's, it's a daily decision. She said she resolved once, and a lot of times we think, oh, I did it, move on. There's moments upon moments where we need to continue to commit, and we're going to have to continue to resolve. It's not just a one-off. See, the more I read about the story, I was starting to see, I really believe that Daniel's success in life was due to pre-decision. Resolve. His success in his life that he experienced was because he made those decisions before he got into circumstance, before things got good, before things got bad. He said, this is who God is. Resolve. Resolve requires change in effort. The one line you probably don't want to hear this morning. Resolve requires sacrifice. It was good the other night. Chatting with Lee and Jules, and we're talking about resolve. I love it. Jules is like, people want the blessing, but we don't want to give the sacrifice that goes attached to the blessing at times. Yeah. So true. It's so true. The resolve, the decisions that we have to make, the time that we have to make to make these draw these barriers, these boundaries in our life that we will not step over this or I'm not going to step back. Remember like him praying, what do we do if that happened to us? If we're in this circumstance, we're like, we're in Daniel's exact circumstance and Darius says, nope, no praying for 30 days. What would we do? Probably most of us would just be like, oh God, we're that cool that like, I'll just take 30 days off, you're cool with it, right? <laughs> I think about it, I'm like, praying. Imagine if you guys are the satraps and you come up and you're like, oh, hey, what you doing? I'm like, oh, I was just praying to King Darius. <laughs> just praying to Darius, facing Jerusalem. Good job and tearing that land up. <laughs> or like, I'm, you know, I'll just be like, oh, I'll just pray under my breath, you know, like, what, what are you doing? Nothing, I'm just singing to myself. Or like on the ground, Hey, who are you praying to? I, I dropped my contact, right? I'm like, just over here. No, I was just like, just, I just dropped something, guys. It's cool. It's cool. I'm not praying. But like, seriously, what would we do? Would we resolve to continue to pray? Chapter 6, verse 23 tells us the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. He had resolved that he could trust God, and God was good. He knew that God was trustworthy. The further I got along in this story, and I've probably read it a million times in the past couple months, came this realization that Daniel had no clue how this story was going to go. Right? He had no clue what the end was going to be. He was in the middle of it. He had no clue what the end was going to be, if he was going to be thrown in the den and if God would deliver him. He had no clue whatsoever. The only thing he did know was that for over 80 odd years of his life, God had been faithful. Yeah. 
So he had no reason to not trust him. In that lion's den, we see that he sent, God sent an angel, and it's God's presence in the middle of circumstance that comforts us and is reassuring to us. Can I invite the worship team on up? Daniel had a habit of resolve. Family, I believe that if we adopt these habits, maybe it's some tweaking, maybe it's some fine-tuning, maybe it's just going to be reassuring because you're like, great, I already got these on lock. I could teach Daniel something. Perfect. I really believe that you could experience God's faithfulness on an entirely different level. Much greater way, a deeper level. It's not easy, obviously, but God will never leave you. You never end it alone. Reminds you of last month when we were speaking in Haggai and we talked about successful people. Remember, they do consistently what normal people do occasionally. So habits of being faithful, a habit of being integrous. That's not even a word. Being a person of integrity. I had to think about that. A habit of prayer. A habit of resolve. Successful people do consistently what normal people do occasionally. I don't know about you, but that leaves a lot on me. That's a choice that I can make. A lot of times I put that on God, but it's actually on me. I could choose to make these decisions in my life. When Billy Graham was once asked, as his, you know, started battling with health, he was asked in an interview um, if there's, you know, one thing that you'd want on your obituary, what would that be when you, you know, finally die? And he said, I just wanted to say that I was faithful and a man of integrity. After years of ministry, you could see that I think that he achieved that. But this story, the story of the lion's den, it's so easy to look at just that one moment, but if we, you know, again, go through these 12 chapters, we're going to see time and time again. It wasn't what Daniel did in that one moment. It was actually the lifetime that he led that put that one moment on display, that allowed him to be unshakable, that allowed him to continue on and to allow God to be God. I'm going to pray for us for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word and how it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, thank you for the message of Daniel and what you did in this man's life how you put them on display. But I thank you for your love, reckless love that pursues us, for the sacrifice that you made, Jesus, on the cross for our sins, to bridge the gap in between us and you so we could have a life with you, God. So Father, I ask in this very moment that you would fixate our eyes on you, on the cross, on that sacrifice, but also the victory that is had because of that. 
In Jesus' name.